Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two, Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Doug Hayduck. Doug is, well, Doug's a videographer. That is what he does now that I know of, um, at least in the off-road world. I met him. He was working with Pistol Pete, and I was crewing with Pistol Pete. And then I found out that he actually had come to Donner and did one of our Cal Rocks or a We Rock, early We Rock event and filmed that as well. So, I'm happy to talk to Doug, and we, he's got some great stories. He's he's done a lot in his history, and we're going to find out all about that. So, Doug, thank you for uh, spending the time with us. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to talk with you. Yeah, we've we've had some pretty good times um, down in in Mexico, you know, with Fast Eddie and uh, and Pete, and we'll get into all of that. But uh, you know, where did you uh, where'd you grow up? How'd you get started? I was uh, born into a military family in Southern California, right down the road from Riverside, California, where the the hotbed of off-road racing was, but I had no part of that. I was, you know, living in a military family and, uh, and uh, traveled around the States as most military brats do. And then uh, my dad finally retired in Colorado and I settled in, our family settled in Grand Junction, Colorado. And you're still in that area now. I'm still in that area now. Moved away. Couldn't wait to move away. <laughs> Went to college. Got out there. Yeah, it was a small. It's a small town, and I wanted the big towns with concerts and nightclubs and and uh, colleges. And and uh, here I am back here in my 60s and living here in uh, right on the Colorado River uh, near the Utah border and just absolutely love it. Have no no desire to move anywhere else. That's awesome. So let's talk about those early years. How how much time did you spend in the Riverside area? Oh, just as a child, just as a, a child until okay. the, like the age of five. And then we moved to more military bases in Arizona and Massachusetts. Uh, and then, and then finally in Colorado Springs for the, uh, my father was head of air defense command okay. um, in Southern California. And he, his work was out on the channel islands. So I never saw my dad as a little kid. Cause he would take a helicopter out to the channel islands and run the radar base watching incursions of Russian bears, they called them, the TU-44 planes, whatever they were, the bomber planes that would come in and just test our, our uh, readiness. This is, this, is in the, this is in the 60s, you know. I'm, 
I'm a, a Cold War kid. Yeah, same here. You know, we're only a couple of years different, I think. Right. I'm, I'll be 64 right. in like 10 days. And you're what, 62? Happy birthday. I'm 62, yep. almost 63. Okay. Yep, we're, no, we're real no, close. No, no, I, no, I made, I've already made a mistake. I'm 63. Ah, see, <laughs> I'm that's 63. what happens when we get old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, I'm just, I'm catching up with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're only a year back then, or not yeah, even. Cor- correct, yep. So anyhow, I, I grew up, I grew up I, my father retired here in, in uh, uh, Grand Junction. I went to high school here. And I lived on the outskirts of town where there was this big BLM area, you know, open to the public, desert, desert hills and canyons. And it really lent itself to motorcycle riding. And of course, as soon as I could afford one, age 15, I got myself a 100cc Hodaka dirt squirt motorcycle that my brother and I went in on halvesies on. And... I never looked back from there. I just loved motorcycles. and I loved going out, exploring in the desert. So when you were in the, before the motorcycle, were you, yes. you bike riding or? No. Uh, no? Nope. I didn't start that. I, so I started that about simultaneously in high school. Okay. And I got in, a, in a, a bicycle club here in Grand Junction. And I didn't start racing until I was in college. Okay. But once I, st- I got into bicycle racing, I just liked to ride. I went to school. In, in, right outside of Denver at the Colorado School of Mines. And we had a big hill climb there every year. And I would train for that. And I won it three years in a row. And everybody said, you need to get racing. Wow. And so when I started racing when I was about 22, right when I entered graduate school. Did and you do any athletics in high school? I did. I ran cross country and played basketball. Oh, that makes sense. And my passion, really my passion in sports was to be a basketball player. I loved it. I played all the time, all the time. And we'd go play at the college here, the junior college that was here and, and uh, play against, you know, real good guys, college guys, and, and just loved it. But I just was not that good. Yeah, that's, I understand. <laughs> I just didn't, I just didn't, I just didn't have it. I loved, and, I loved football, but I yeah. sucked in high school. Um, but I think it was all my mindset at the time. It wasn't that, that I, that I wasn't, I could have been good if I'd had a different mindset, I think. Yeah, it takes, yeah, it takes that dedication and intensity. Right. And, and, and to some, it seems to come natural and others not so. Or it comes a little later. Yeah. You have to be be kind of aggro and, and super aggressive in, at least in contact sports like football and basketball the same way, because it, there, it is definitely a contact sport. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. And my parents pushed me into academics and, uh, I went into engineering at Colorado school mines and that was a real good school. I, I actually was going to go into the military it's coming from an air force family. I was uh, applied to the air force Academy and they turned me down for my eyesight. I didn't have 2020 uncorrected. Oh, wow. And, uh, even though I had 2020 corrected and then about three months later, they changed their mind and said, yeah, we'll take you come on. You know, my father was a, a colonel in the air force and, and, uh, ha- having grown up in Colorado Springs, I said, yeah, come on over to air force Academy. But by then I had already decided to stay at school mines and be a civilian. Okay. I was a little, little worried about the discipline and the, and the rigidity of <laughs> the, of the uh, air force lifestyle. I can understand that. 
<laughs> I think I made the right decision. That's kind so, of the uh, the reason I I led the life I've led. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that freedom is is a nice thing, and the military doesn't offer that so much. No. They take care of you, but you do what they say when they say. So yeah, that or they they eliminate your, you know, your ride, and then you get that oh. thing hanging over you and everything else. So oh yeah. So what was the, uh, what kind of engineering were you looking to do? Well, it, when I, by the time I was in college, I was into, I really liked fabrication of parts. I liked welding. I worked on my motorcycle. I worked on bicycles and I wanted to learn about welding and, and metals construction. So I learned that there was a subject called metallurgy and it was all about the manufacturing and, and production of metals. And that was a college degree that Colorado School of Mines offered. And it was, uh, uh, they had uh, a track record of employing everybody that got out of there, got a real high paying job. And the, the offer of, or the, the opportunity to have maybe a half a dozen professional job opportunities once you graduated. So I stayed there for four years and got a bachelor's degree, uh, was ready to take a job at the uh, Rockwell International Rocky Flats plant, which made, which made the triggers and the interior workings of atomic bombs, which was a plant that's no longer around, which is halfway between Denver and Boulder. Okay. And um, all that work has have been moved down to Texas now, just outside of Amarillo. But I decided to stay on. I was offered a graduate degree or graduate program, and I stayed on working as a civilian for the Navy. Okay. And I was, I was charged with helping to solve their welding cracking problems on thick section titanium for submarine holes. Wow. Yeah. The submarine program, you know, this, again, this is still cold war, even though it's 1980 now, right? It, uh, titanium holds submarines could stay under longer, uh, uh, dive deeper, because the holes were, were stronger and uh, they had problems with some of the alloys they were using. So I had a coaching from the Office of Naval Research and they paid my full way through college or graduate school to help solve their weld cracking problems. Well, and it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but titanium is, is very strong, but it's also brittle. It, 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 yes, it can be brittle. It okay. can be really brittle, especially if, it, if you have problems welding it. You know, the this fabrication of it is very difficult. Right. I, when I played darts at a pretty high level, um, I wouldn't say it was professional, but it was, you know, I was on a tour kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, I, I, I used titanium darts because I could get a smaller dart and carry the same weight. Right. And I remember that uh, the first set of darts that I had custom made um, actually broke when they hit um, a hard tiled floor. And it was like, okay, we got to start that one over again. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there, there's, there's a whole series of titanium alloys. It's, it's actually a fairly new metal. It's a, you know, it's called an aerospace metal, and it was really wasn't available to us into manufacturing until the fifties. Right. In fact, the Russians were ahead of us there, and a lot of a lot of the work that I was doing were on pieces of Russian submarine that we had acquired, and I wasn't allowed to even, not allowed to talk about it at the time. 
I was not allowed to talk about the composition, but I could tell from the pieces that were given to us, they were cut out of submarine, Russian submarine holes. And it was turns out to be a, a sunken Russian submarine in the Baltic Sea near the, off the coast of Sweden that we were trying to see what alloys they were using and how they were developing their submarines. So kind of a reverse engineer. Yes. Yeah, and compare them against the alloys that we were using and the welding processes that we were using. And how long did you stay in the engineering world? Oh, on and off until now, okay. really. Um, I, I, I worked, uh, you know, professionally in Southern, went back to Southern California and worked on the cruise missile program and the refurbishing the Atlas missiles after the, after the failure in 1986 of the, uh, shuttle, uh, Challenger, they needed launch vehicles for, uh, um, satellites and other missions. And they had a big warehouse full of Atlas, which were the old original ICBMs designed by Werner von Braun. And so I worked at General Dynamics in San Diego, downtown San Diego, for the, both the cruise missile and the Atlas program. And the thing about living in San Diego is I loved that beach and I loved the bicycle riding there. And I, got, I joined the San Diego Bicycle Club. and everybody encouraged me to keep racing because I was good. They said I was good for being a big guy that I, and I, and I got results. So I ended up just leaving work, quitting after a few years to race to, and moved back to Boulder, Colorado and raced on a team for a couple of years Wow! and traveled, traveled around, raced all over the Western U S not a pro. And I just, I wasn't at the, the most elite level, but I raced against the guys that were in the elite level, the, the guys that were going to the tour de France and the guys that were sponsored by Seven Eleven. Wow. That's, yep. that's pretty cool. I, I knew that you had I, raced. I, I was lean and mean and I got into mountain bike racing early too. In in 1983, when the first, which was the first or second year of commercially available mountain bikes. Wow. Let's talk about that. Well, that was fun because it was more like a motorcycle thing. It was a little not as strict and rigid as, as road racing was, and uh, there weren't as many people into it. Right. So being a good road racer and having that fitness, I automatically could pretty much kick ass on a mountain bike. Right, and being at training at high altitude to begin with. Yep, and spending a lot of time on a bike, you just had that fitness that mountain bikers were a little more uh, kind of a counterculture and a little more hippie-ish and like to – you know, smoke their weed before they go ride. <laughs> and that's not so conducive to racing and, and, and road racers are very strict. We watch what we eat. We count our calories. We, we monitor our heart rate before and after exercising. And it, it kind of, it was kind of, uh, more than I really wanted to do. You know, again, it was like being in the military to be a high level racer. And I didn't like that. Right. I like to play around. I like to go to Seven Eleven and buy a 99 cent burrito and slather it with crappy salsa <laughs> half an hour before a race and whatever happens happens <laughs> <laughs> so i used to do that so Go i have ahead. a question um anybody that that was a that's been a biker you know at, at a level like you have were you surprised about armstrong getting busted for performance enhancing no because we knew about that we we knew about that even back in the 80s. What we were doing 
there weren't really there wasn't really a lot of suspicion back then. We would do epinephrine. We were trying to do bronchiodilators to 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 open up our breathing because that's what that's what seemed to matter and really would impact us was being able to have a take in bigger breaths of air and open up your airways. So we would take these like asthmatics. We'd take these bronchiodilators, okay. and that is the kind of thing that will get you kicked out of professional racing. But back then, they were not tested for it. But then when Armstrong came around in the 90s, he started as a junior in 92, I think. I raced against him down in Bisbee, New Mexico. It was the first race I ever confronted him in, and they were already talking about him. And by then, when he got in as a professional, we, we all knew that, that, that the, the, the doping happened. But we, don't, you know, we didn't know to what extent. They were pretty secretive about it, right. but it didn't, didn't surprise me. You know, our Olympians got busted back in 1984 – our Olympic team in Southern California, which were also guys I raced against because I was living in Southern California in 1884. They got busted for what was called blood boosting, which they'd take out their own blood, oxygenate it, and then put it in the refrigerator and then put it back in their body right before a race <laughs> to give them higher, a higher uh, red blood cell count. <laughs> a higher hematocrit level is what it was called. And, wow. and, and they they somehow were able to keep their medals because that they were using their own body fluids. It was not doping, technically. It is now, but yeah. it wasn't then. That's it was called blood blood boosting. Blood boosting. Interesting. Yeah. Pretty wild. So you raced for a couple of years. You started off racing when you were at at the uh, school of mines. Yep, I raced for I raced a total of twenty years on and off. Wow! Until until about the year two thousand or two thousand one, but I really tapered down in the nineties. Okay. I realized when I I got when I realized at thirty five years old, I thought, okay, now I'm a veteran. I go into this category called vets, and I can kick ass. And I get in the vets, and it was all the same guys that were beating me when when I was in my twenties. <laughs> the same guys that are a little bit older and showing some age, but they're just as fast. <laughs> Yeah, I thought they were going to all quit and I was going to keep racing. No, they're still there racing and beating me. So, I, I, you know, almost like the way it was for me in basketball, I realized I'm really not that good. And I don't, I'm not getting paid to do this. You know, I'm getting product, but I need to, I need to focus on other things. Right. And so I slowed down with that. And, uh, but you didn't go you back know, I, into I engineering. I did. Oh, yeah. I still kept okay. my engineering job. Okay. Yeah. I still worked, I, I still worked at eight to five. All I would right. get out of work. I worked for a, a large mining company in Salt Lake City for eight years. That was my longest job. Okay. And I and, and I would get out of work at four thirty, and I would rush home, get on my bike, and ride till it was dark, right up the canyons out of Salt Lake City, and and try to go one one and a half hour exercise before it was dark. And then, of course, more in the summer, and then I'd go race on the weekends, and I'd come to work beat on Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> when I was supposed to be chipper and fresh and, you know, make my bosses happy. But, um, yeah, I, I kept on in engineering and I had some really great experiences. I, I learned to speak Spanish cause I worked in South America. I worked in, in Lima, Peru for, for a copper mining company for a while. Wow. It was a company, it was a company, American company, but we owned half of a, half of a, uh, a large private copper mining company in, and precious metals company in, in Peru. Well, that's awesome. Where else have you that's traveled? A, oh, all over Central America. Uh, I went to Europe with some bike racers out of Sweden and traveled around Europe. Didn't race, but just ran around with our bikes and rode. And followed the Tour de France. I've been to the Tour de France race following that as a spectator, oh, four or five times. 
four or five different years. Um, so I, I enjoyed Europe and, and, uh, then I worked for a bike company for a little bit and they sent me to Taiwan and, uh, and it was, a, you know, had Which, some, had some interesting travels there. What, what bike company did you work for? It was a Swiss company called DT Swiss. They make bicycle wheels, hubs, and spokes all, all, started in switzerland and they started their company here in colorado their u.s office and again that was the engineering the super lightweight materials and that yep, kind of stuff yep yep that and the fact that i was a racer and under and knew the racing community right you yeah. know i could help them with sales with uh, production issues engineering issues i did the same thing for lamond bicycles in 1993 and 1994 before trek bicycles picked them up i was living in boulder and I'd race, I'd work during the day or half a day and sell custom bicycles for Greg LeMond wow. and uh, with his name on him. Yep. And then Trek came in and picked him up and licensed him. And then that job went away. So, um, yeah, I've had some, some, some interesting things. I, I always thought it would be a, the ultimate opportunity to use my engineering in sporting goods. Right. And you were able then, to do that for a while, at least. I was able to do that. And then I was able to do it later in the 90s, where I took a job in Prescott, Arizona, working for Ruger Firearms. Ruger, it was an investment casting division, making golf clubs for Callaway. The titanium, again, this was because of my tiny knowledge of titanium welding and titanium casting, titanium manufacturing. They were making all the Callaway Great Big Berthas, which were just the boom in the late 90s. You know, everybody, every golfer had to have one. So and they were Ruger and the owned did, Callaway? No. Okay. Bill Ruger, the patriarch and founder, right. met Ely Callaway, who was also, you know, multimillionaires. They met on a runway comparing Learjets somewhere in California. And the it was his nineteen late seventies and, and they're just talking about manufacturing precision parts and which is which Ruger does with firearms, right. making handguns. Investment cast, real high precision. Uh, high-tech metals. Ruger knew how to do that, so Callaway gave all the work to make the Great Big Bertha, the first titanium golf club. Huh. And they were cast in Prescott, Arizona, and sent down to Mexicali, Mexico, in Baja, for finishing to a Macchiadora plant for the final finishing of... Uh, uh, taking out imperfections and polishing and painting, you know, painting in the numbers and the letters and everything. And then they were sent to Callaway, which was in Carlsbad, California. So I was in charge of getting an electron beam welder working so that we could hot fire all the welders, all the high paid welders that would call in sick every Friday and it, have it all done computerized. So they sent me to um, Rolls Royce in Cambridge, England, to learn how to work this electron beam welder. And we spent a million dollars on electron beam welder to make it all automated. Wow. Okay. That, but in the meantime, cool now, stories. <laughs> it was a cool story, but in the meantime, here we're supposed to be making, we were supposed to be making up to 2000 golf clubs a day. And I started realizing, wait a minute, this is going to die eventually because eventually everybody's going to have one of these clubs. You know, every man, woman, and child can't own a $400 golf club, which was the price of these things back in the late 90s. You know, golf was booming, and, you know, the stock market was good, and tech was booming, and, you know, people were spending a lot of money on golf. And so 
I got to go. I got to golf and meet some interesting people, you know, got to follow along with Jack Nicholas and uh, Tom Fazio, which was the designer with, with um, uh, Ford, Gerald Ford up in Vail. Nice. Just sit behind them and watch them golf. I didn't golf. I just followed along. But anyhow, what happened as, as happens in all manufacturing is Callaway looked for a low cost producer and it wasn't Ruger. It was in China. And so all the while where they're smiling at us and having us make more and more golf clubs, they're going to China to learn how to get the, get all the work done in China. And so all of a sudden they pulled the plug one day and said, sorry, we don't need you anymore because they had it all manufactured in China for probably a third or a fourth of the price. And yet still kept the, the, you know, they, that all just went into their bottom line. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the quality was there, you know, it took a while to get it down because it is, it, it is, you know, titanium is a difficult material and actually making a golf club where, where, where you hit the golf ball at a hundred miles an hour. It's, it's actually kind of an engineering challenge to make it work right without breaking a golf club and weighing the right amount and not having casting defects and being able to charge somebody $300 for it. That'll last at least a whole season. Yeah. You would hope. So <laughs> I, I never realized that until I got down there and it's like, Oh, these golf clubs are, you know, these high tech golf clubs are really kind of, there's a lot of thought that goes into them. So I did that for a while and then, um, moved on and, uh, they don't make golf clubs anymore, but they still have their, their handgun manu- manufacturing plant down there. The, the high, you've asked me what the highlight of my work was at Ruger. Yeah. It was every other Friday morning, I could go in at six in the morning and I was friends with a guy. He was a motorcycle racer. He still is a motorcycle racer. He was in charge of programming the uh, CNC machines that I was, that I was doing with the welding, but he also worked on the submachine gun program. They made us a, a nine millimeter uh, briefcase submachine gun, which never got sold in the United States because our police forces don't use fully auto. Right. It's, it's just too, too much scattered, too much spray of into, into innocence, but South Americans do, uh, Europeans do. So they made a nine millimeter submachine gun and I got to go to the indoor range there at Ruger and I'd bring some, uh, defective golf clubs. We throw them down the range and we shoot golf clubs with a <laughs> with a submachine gun. <laughs> that was fun, and the and the titanium would spark, silver sparks. It was it was it was crazy. Bing 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 bing. <laughs> so that's awesome. That was my highlight. <laughs> so well, at, at Ruger, I wasn't into guns, and I wasn't into golf that much, but I sure enjoyed that combination of shooting <laughs> guns at golf clubs. <laughs> So what other, what other companies did you, did you work for as an engineer or, or you know, in the bicycle well, well, world or whatever that, that, I mean, it's just amazing. I, I did some consulting. I wrote a couple books. I did some consulting and I wanted to be a consultant. I only wanted to be independent and be a consultant, but that's really hard to do. You got to keep chasing it. And uh, one, one job ends and then you got nothing. And, 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 you know, it, it's kind of nice to have be on somebody's payroll, but I, uh, I came back to Grand Junction. This is actually fairly recent. The most recent real engineering work I had was working in a gold mine down in Ure, Colorado. Okay. It was a hundred-year-old gold mine that had been resurrected by some graduates of Colorado School of Mines. So they hired a friend of mine who was an engineer, 
and a bike builder. He built, he built a lot of my racing bikes and he was here and he had his, uh, professional engineering degree and his certification in the state of Colorado to sign off on drawings and things. And he, his dad was in charge of all the whole uranium program in Western Colorado, which was again, cold war stuff, getting uranium for weapons right. back in the fifties. So Martin, my friend hired me to go down three times, times a week, drive down three times a week, hundred miles and up into the mountains to uh, work in a uh, surveying and designing this new gold mine, old gold mine, refurbishing a gold mine. That's pretty cool. And we were promised, we were promised verbally that we were going to have bonuses that could be anywhere between one and five times our salary. Ah, you know, the old we verbal gonna, promise. Everybody was going to get rich, and it didn't work out. And they ended up abandoning the mine and closing it down. And there were some deaths. There was some. There was some poor decisions made and some people died in the mine Oh, and it's back up going again, but a whole new company, a Canadian company. Okay. But that was very interesting because I'd never really been in mining. I worked at, I went to Colorado school of mines and I knew mining engineers, but I really didn't want to be a miner, hard work and dangerous. Right. And so what did you do down in, in Peru? You said it was Peru, right? Um, yes. With the, with that the was just developing. Te- I was. I, I was in. I was in a, a, a copper production facility where they take all the copper and they're making the, the end a consumer product. The end product is wire, heavy right. gauge wire that's then drawn out for copper wire, and they had a new way of making wire directly from the copper solution, plating wire and and, and drawing uh, high conductivity copper wire, and it didn't work. It was somebody that had a patent. They were trying to sell us a patent, and I was sent down there to see if it worked. Uh-huh. And, it, and it didn't. But I, I'll tell you, I had some good times in Peru. I would I'd go on the weekends speaking Spanish and not feeling intimidated by the Latino culture. I would get on a bus and go up into the high mountains. I was still in good shape then and go up into the mountains or go to Machu Picchu. And I did some nice touristy things on the weekends. Well, that's pretty cool. I don't Even think though, I could I don't think I could make that that hike. Um. It was hard. I almost passed out. I, I probably, I, I probably came close to dying once. I went right from sea level to fifteen thousand feet, which was really high. I just talked to a friend, you know, Andy Myers. Right. I just talked to him about doing a motorcycle trip down there. He goes, "Where are there, where are there mountain passes over fifteen thousand feet high?" Because he was bragging about motorcycle riding in, in uh, Asia. Right. Uh, in the in the foothills, I think in India or somewhere in the foothills of the Himalaya. And I said, it's not in Colorado, I'll tell you that. It's in Peru. And there are passes that are 16,000 feet. And you get into, I got in a truck of people that, that of uh, indigenous Indians going to work, and I jumped in the back of the truck there and learned how to take the coca leaf to, to help off with the right. uh, high-altitude sickness. and Because uh, they just yeah, chew on it. You chew on it, but you also have to activate it with an alkaloid. You have to activate it with seashells, crushed oh. seashell. And you have to take – they take these little pins. They're like a, like a knitting needle, and I think they're just made of bone. And you have to poke the inside of your cheek so that it bleeds, so that it goes right into the bloodstream. Wow. So you take the leaves, you chew them. You, then you take this little bowl of, of uh, crushed seashell, which is calcium carbonate. Right. And then you have to poke the inside of your cheek a whole bunch of times, and it goes right into your bloodstream and gets you that coca high. Not not cocaine, but it, it that's what you have to do to make it really work right. Huh. 
just just chewing the leaves is not enough. Okay. Is it fascinating? Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah. And they all do that. They all, all the workers do that. It's just like, it's just kind of like smoking or drinking coffee. And huh. that's about the buzz you get from it. Well, that's a, that's a shame then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not, you know, cocaine is really highly refined. It's a, it's a, it's a world away from cocaine. Right. I, I know that I've had some pretty good uh, buzzes from, from some really strong coffees. Um, oh yeah, you know, by drinking way too many of them at once. <laughs> oh yeah, you wonder what's in it. It's like, what is that in there? <laughs> yeah. So the what are some of the other interesting things that you've you've done it with the engineering? Do you, do you have any other stories like that? Any other companies? Um, let me think. Oh, I, well, I started, my, here's something interesting. I, this is, this is me being an entrepreneur. Okay. And this kind of got, this kind of got into why I got into off-road. Perfect. And I'll just say right now, the reason I got into off-road and off-road racing is because I had an expensive camera. <laughs> I had back, back around, this is now 2000, 2001, 2002, when Rock got started. Yes. United Rock Crawling and Off-Road Challenge, the Patey Brothers in in Ogden, Utah, or in Orem, Utah, right. Provo. You knew them. And I, I I don't know if that was – We Rock was going on same time. We started Cal Rocks in 2001, which is okay, when You Rock – Okay, right about the same – You Rock got started the same time with Craig Stump. Craig and, Stump, that's right. I met him. And then the Pateys came on as a partner of his. That's right. That's right. Craig was – Craig was a competitor. I knew him as yes. a competitor. He had this red Jeep and he was really into competing where the Pateys weren't competitors. They were more the business end and, you know, made Correct. sure the event went off and got the permits. Yes. They are the ones that paid my way. But now, now let me go backwards. I, the reason I had a camera and which not a lot of people did back then. Now people have vi- nice video cameras and still cameras on their phone. Yeah. But remember there were no, cell phones back then really and no smart with cameras <laughs> no smartphones nothing you know if you had a if you had a video camera you were a serious enthusiast you paid you spent some money you laid out a thousand bucks or more right now now you can get a camera that works for a hundred bucks a gopro and just push a button back then you kind of had to know a little bit true yeah and and, and it was all done on tapes you know none, no sd cards it was all tape cameras it was a pain in the ass, a giant pain in the ass. Right, especially editing. Oh, yeah, horrible. Especially in off-road because of the dust. You'd you'd come back with your tape and you you'd have dropouts. You'd have problems with the tape because it got dust particles on the tape and during the recording and it would screw up the audio and screw up some of the video and you'd get really frustrated. So And that 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 went on to about 2005 or 6, actually about 2007 when SD cards st- started coming out with certain quality but let me get back to 2000 the year 2000 when right the, this invention i had i was filming guys on mountain boards which were large off-road skateboards right i was my idea was to make i wanted to make a video of of uh, guys on mountain boards and downhill mountain biking was just getting going the free riding and i went to salt so i went to moab and there was a free ride competition in 2002, which was the Rim Trail. And everybody knows the Moab Rim Trail. 
Right. Because it's a it's a Jeep trail. One yep. mile up at about a 45 degree angle. Very steep, short and steep. And back then, there was a chairlift that went up there. Yes. And the chairlift, they would take mountain bikers on it, and they mountain bikers would go down it. And it was intense. And I had a camera, a good camera, and I shot it. And these guys go, what are you doing with your footage? I said, oh, I'm thinking of making a DVD. They said, well, let me, let me take you to dinner. Let me, these were guys from Salt Lake City that worked for Rock. I didn't know it at the time. But they said, here, let me, let me buy my, the footage from you. I said, oh, 50 bucks. And I said, yeah, sure. So they gave me 50 bucks. Then they called me up the next week and said, hey, you shoot good stuff. You're good with a camera. You know, it's not rocket science, but I paid attention. I was a photographer. And they said, we want you to come and shoot Rock for us. You can make, I don't know how much it was, $300 a day or something like that. And we'll put you in a hotel and you travel around from St. George to Salt Lake to um, uh, Moab to Vernal to Farmington. And I shot Rock for three years. Okay. And shooting off-road, sh- sh- shooting uh, uh, U-Rock was fun, but one day I met Walker Evans. Yeah. And everybody, everybody said who Walker Evans is. Like, yeah, he's a, he's a frustrated desert racer that's made to go slow. He doesn't like to go slow. He liked to, he liked to hit that right pedal, and he liked to haul ass. And in rock calling, as you know, that doesn't always work. No. It's, it's more about finesse than it is about strength and, and, and uh, knowing when to lay off the gas pedal. And, and Walker was, looked at me one day and he goes, you look bored, son. You need to go down to a desert race and shoot that. And I said, well, I've thought about that, but I've never been down there. I don't know anybody in desert racing. And I really didn't. I had been to one desert race in my life, and that was 1976 when I was out motorcycle riding. They had the Colorado West 300 which was an off-road race. And there was actually a score race, but I wasn't at that one. There was a score race in Colorado. Huh. I was up in Craig, Colorado. And a lot of off-road racers would talk to me about that. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I wasn't into off-roading back then in the seventies, but Walker Evans talked to me and go into balls. And I said, yeah, that's on my bucket list, but you know, I, I don't really know how to go, go about that. So I had a nice camera. I was shooting. I never did make my, downhill mountain board video but mountain boards were these long off-road skateboards about three four feet long with big kind of knobby tires off-road just like an off-road skateboard is what it was yep but these guys were crashing and their foot were their, their feet were put into it like skateboard by snowboard bindings and they would fall and they'd get these horrible spiral fractures of their tib fibs and <laughs> hurt themselves horribly i went to a festival in moab and one in aspen and and I watched a guy become a paraplegic, and I watched other guys break their legs and hurt themselves. And I go, this will never do. They're trying to get them approved for use at ski resorts. Yeah. No I thought, way. This, is just too, this is too dangerous. I'm watching I'm, – I'm filming car crashes. This is not good. You know, I'm watching guys hurt themselves. It's not fun. Right. And, and, and you know, there's still mountain boarding still exists, but it's really kind of a fringe cult sport because the ski areas don't want those things because they're too dangerous. They won't let you ride up the ski lifts with them and run down the ski runs because it's too extreme. Right. You know, ski, everybody wants extreme, but ski, ski, ski resorts wanted something for summer operations and they had mountain biking and they wanted quote extreme, but they didn't want real extreme. They don't want anybody getting hurt. They don't want lawsuits is what they don't want. Yeah, the, that extra liability. Yep. Yeah. So now this gets into my invention. 
I decided I'm going to take a, one of those mound boards, make it a little bigger, longer, wider, put some real axles on it, put some suspension on it, brakes, mountain bike brakes. I knew bike industry, put some brakes on it and make it steer and a seat. And I went down to off-road warehouse in San Diego and I bought some fiberglass buggy seats. And I put those, put a seat and brakes and some steering. And I made a 50 pound off-road gravity powered go-kart. <laughs> they were they were called gravity carts. They looked like little, you know, like the the little kids that ride the um the um scooters. Not the scooters, because the four wheels. Okay. They're the the car the carts the carts down um, you know the Pinewood Derby. No soapbox derby. Okay. All the towns they still have soapbox derbies. Yeah. I'm joining all these soapbox derby clubs in around the western Midwest is really big on them. They have them down their biggest hill in town, like sledding. So I made these things called gravity carts and I refined them over about two years and I would make the wheels come off and put on skis so they could run in the wintertime. And I went around trying to sell them to ski resorts, including Norm Saylor at Donner Mountain, uh, Donner Ski Ranch, good old Norm. because because he, he could make things happen. The Norman small guys, Norm. they owned them. He didn't have to go to a board of directors or a, the risk manager was him. Correct. Where I go to Vail and they say, yeah, you're talking to the CEO. I think it's cool, but and our and our summer officer guy loves it. But you need to talk to the risk manager, <laughs> the he's, lawyer. He's, <laughs> yep, he's the guy that deals with the lawyers and probably is a lawyer. And he's the one that does the numbers and say, okay, we're going to make X amount of sales, and we're going to probably have two lawsuits against us, and we may lose two million dollars. Are we going to still make a profit? Yeah. And the answer to that was pretty much no. So they said they would only go do it for me with Vail. Res- I had Vail Resorts in my back pocket, but I had to provide the liability insurance. Ooh. I spent I spent a lot of time refining these things, and and my video camera was used and purchased really for uh, my upgraded video camera was to make my own video to demonstrate them. And so I had good video equipment in two thousand three, two thousand four, and was still shooting U Rock, and then went into a couple of year events and a couple of uh, Mike Schaefer's uh, rock race events, XRRA. Oh, Mike Weaver. Yes. And Mike Weaver. What did I say? Schaefer. Oh, Schaefer. Mike. Yeah. That's a different <laughs> guy. Mike Weaver. Yeah. And, and started and, 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 and had all this content and started producing DVDs. And, and, and I had, by then, by then I had gone to, I, I'm getting ahead of myself because by then I had already gone down to a couple of Baja 1000 races, but getting back to my gravity carts in 2002, the, the winter Olympics were in Salt Lake city and I had sold a program to park city because park city was a privately owned company and they were self-insured as two rich guys, the coming brothers who loved go-karts, loved racing, car racing, loved anything truly extreme. And they loved my gravity carts and they bought a whole fleet of them from me, 12 of them. Nice. And, and they wanted me to run it. So I ran them in the summer and ran them in the winter. And I, I pitched it to the Today Show. And I was, I was live on the Today Show during the 2002 Olympics. And I had Katie Couric, Al Roker, and Matt Lauer all ride these things down a ski slope <laughs> on live TV exactly 20 years ago last month. Nice. For, for during the Olympics in Park City. And everybody said, you're going to be a millionaire. You're going to be a million, millionaire. Anybody that, has a, anybody that has a product that they pitch on, on today's show becomes a millionaire. 
I thought, well, that's nice. Where's your million? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should have said, told somebody, that's you know a- what? I'll sell it to you for $900,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't really get rich off of that because it was too extreme. You could really hurt yourself on them. Right. And now if you go to ski resorts all over the place, they're in Colorado and there's places, there's one right up in Glenwood Springs here. They have these things that are like, uh, they're, they're called uh, mountain coasters and they're on tracks and you can, you can have a heart attack or fall asleep or freak out and you'll just end up at the bottom safely. Huh? They're, they're, they're like an Alpine slide, but they're on car. Oh carts, yeah, that's right. The okay. carts that look just like mine, except for that they're, 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 they're physically attached to railing, like a little railroad track and they get you to the bottom without and it feels like you're like a roller coaster it feels like you're doing something really extreme but you're really safe you know you and that's you, you talk about having ideas and and trying to get a product out when yeah. i was a kid you know i i spent all my winters at squaw valley which is now palisades tahoe or something like that um Oh, that's right. They can't use the word squaw. Yeah. They just changed that. Yeah. So yeah, I've skied at squaw. I've skied with paraplegics at Squaw Valley. It's a great resort. It really is. Very much so. Very much so. But it's, I pretty much grew up there because wow. all my winters yeah. were spent there skiing. And we got, you know, we got, as kids do, we started experimenting with things. And I tried, um, I took one of my single water skis because I was either water skiing or snow skiing. It seemed yep. like, and we, uh, I, I took that up on the hill and put bindings on it. And, you know, I never, uh, I never perfected anything, but, you know, we were doing it way before anybody had the idea. The I should say Burton, that Burton. Or the mount, or the, yeah, the, the snowboard. Oh yeah. Right. And I mean, we took a surfboard and tried to do it. I mean, all sorts of things. Um, then the other thing we did is we took our, BMX style bikes and we took the wheels off and cut down skis so that I had, you know, a, a longer <laughs> ski in the back and a shorter ski yeah. in the front. Yep. And we attached those to trucks yep. and then, you know, yep. to skateboard trucks and then put them on the, on the bicycles and rode yep. those all the time. Yep. But the, the that's ski very, resorts wouldn't let us, that's... let us go up the slopes on them. <laughs> no. Cause they see that they're, they're, they could get sued over that kind of thing. And, right. that's, that's and this was I, all that's late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's in the, during the skateboard craze. Yep. Yeah, well, I met some of those inventors. I used to go to, I went, to, I would take my my sleds to the, the ski show in Vegas and then down to the uh, action sports show, action sports retailer show in San Diego or Orange County or somewhere. And I'd meet all these guys that were old skaters and they had these crazy ideas little disc brakes for skateboards and this and that. And it, you know, the same, the same kind of inventions that you do tweaking yep. things and using their enthusiasm, you know, that's, that's what it takes is ambition and a little bit of vision and just the drive, you know, yep. to, to, to try to invent something and create something not, not especially revolutionary, but evolutionary, the next step. Right. We did look, it just look, for fun. I mean, yeah, it was just all yeah, personal yeah. fun. It wasn't never thought about. Oh, this will be really cool. We can sell these. I mean, we yeah. just did shit. You know, I mean, because we're just you're just looking for another rush to have something yep. besides a BMX bike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's cool. There's it's a it's a it's a neat movie that that has been done in parts of of kids growing up making cool things. And they start with the basics of a skateboard and a sled, and that's what I started with. Those are those are the foundations. 
I've been, I've thought of making a movie actually seriously thinking about making a movie that that's called gravity gets me down. And it's all about things that use gravity to get down hills on non-motorized. Hmm. You think of all the little inventions and things that people have done, starting with a sled as a kid, the, the flexible flyer sled and the toboggan and the, and the, the, the saucer escape <laughs> skateboards and saucers, very, very crude instruments. Yep. And then they, they get up into high technology stuff, you know, and including, you know, really like the Olympic events, the, the bobsled and the luge, those are just sliding devices yep. that just use gravity. And, uh, <laughs> so it's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, subject matter for me anyhow, and probably for you too. And Absolutely. It, so you got to find um, somebody to fund that. That's the problem. I needed money. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't. I was not wealthy. I won't say I was not wealthy enough. I was not wealthy at all. I was hurting financially. I was struggling. I was living in a Volkswagen, a red Volkswagen Eurovan, sleeping in the heated parking garage in Park City Mountain Resort during the Olympics. I got kicked out of my apartment because they could rent my, they could rent my room out for $500 a day instead of $500 a month during the Olympics. <laughs> so I got kicked out and I had the keys I had the keys to this lodge that was owned by the Park City Mountain Resort. I had the keys where I could store the spare parts and the spare wheels or or sled uh, uh, skis to my gravity sleds in this lodge called the called the Munchkin Lodge, and it was just a big warehouse. And I had the keys to go in there, and I set up camp in there, and I lived there for three months until in April they came because there was a. Uh, a, a warm day and the water was melting and it was coming inside the building. And so they sent some guys in there and they saw us like, there's somebody living in here. There was no heat. <laughs> there was no heat. And I had one giant long extension cord that would run to a little heater, a little tiny poor, spacey, little tiny $10 heater that would blow on my face so I could sleep in the night. <laughs> what did they do when they found out that you were, they, they they didn't get mad at me. They said, "Well, you really need to be out." But it was already the end of the season. Right. They were sympathetic, and I became a legend in Park City Mountain in Park City. It's like this guy was sleeping in the Munchkin Lodge, and it gets you know it gets down below zero. I had two <laughs> downsling bags. I was a Boy Scout. <laughs> yep. And I even had I had a girlfriend in there once and spent the night with me during the Olympics. <laughs> and I spent whatever money I had, I spent on Olympic tickets. So that's uh, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> I'm yeah, loving so, these stories. So, so, yeah, live, living for free in Park City during the Olympics, I was pretty proud of myself. And I would go sneak into some condominiums and use my use my library card to get through the gate and go into this hot tub and shower and bathe in the bathrooms for this little hot tub at a condominium complex. And I did that at like four in the morning to get <laughs> all prepped and ready for to be on live on the Today Show. <laughs> little did they know that's what I was doing. And I was, you know, I, I was, I was defecating into a porta little tiny plastic bag and, and throwing my trash in the dumpster every morning. It so, was, it was, it, it was crazy, but I did what I had to do. It prepared you for trips to Baja. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It lowered my standards of living to where I could go with pistol Pete and sleep on the floor and, 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 and have, bathrooms that didn't have hot water and no flush toilets. <laughs> so, so anyhow, I'll, I'll get, yeah, I'd like to get, start getting into off-road racing and how I got it. Now, I'm, like all this is kind of set up into how I got into off-road racing. And I started alluding to that by meeting Walker Evans and rock, rock crawling. Right. And I had already cut my teeth in video and I felt confident. I was, you know, I could sell myself as a videographer. 
And in 2004, I went to my first off-road race. It was the Baja 1000. Okay. I, I, I acquired some money. I inherited a little bit of money. I bought a pickup truck, four-wheel drive pickup truck and a shell and, and a motorcycle and took it all down and camped at the Ojos Negros jumps of the Baja 1000. And I met a guy who's very well known in San Felipe, Martin Romo. He owns the, the beans and rice restaurant. He was trying to do video. And I said, I'd work for him. And he, he got me on his media pass and I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any of the racers. All I knew that Baja racing was badass. Right. You know, I'd seen some videos, you know, there was no YouTube then this is pre YouTube. There's a pre anything on the internet about it, but you know, you could see some DVDs and, you know, maybe there would be a five minute segment on wide world of sports or something. Just the same with bike racing. There'd be a little tiny segment that would just get you kind of excited about the sport and then nothing more. And growing up in Western Colorado, there were some off-road racers here, but I didn't really know them. And I knew motorcycles though. And I knew motorcycle racing and I felt kind of confident and I had the video and I knew that DVDs were selling. So I went in there with a goal of selling DVDs again, where there's no YouTube, there's no free content. So people would buy DVDs right. between the years 2004, all the way up to about 2009. If you put out a DVD, even if it was crap, you could sell a thousand of them because there was not a lot available. So I did that. I produced three DVDs. About 2005, I was in Pahrump, Nevada at Casey Folk's Best in the Desert, Terrible Town 250, and I met Pistol Pete. I didn't really know who he was, but he had gotten like third place, and he asked me, hey, do you got any video of me? You know, he was really Pistol Pete, Pete Soren, the reason we know each other and the reason I know a lot of people on off-road is because of Pistol Pete and, and, and God rest his soul, you know, rest in peace, Pete. He's been gone for about three years now, two years, three years. Yep. And he was just a real outgoing, real loud guy and a good racer. And he, he, I said, I'll give you, I'll send you some of the video. Give me your address. And he goes, well, how about, how about this? We're going to go down and do a race in Rocky Point. It was that uh, race organization out of Tucson, I believe. That Southern Arizona Desert Racing. That's it. Yep. SADR. Yep. He said, we're going to go down to Rocky Point. You know where Rocky Point is? I said, nope. He goes, it's just like San Felipe, except it's on the mainland. Come with us. You can come with us. And that's when I really met Pistol Pete. He introduced me to his family. And that was wonderful because... I'd never had any of the desert racers. I was still pretty new, but I didn't know anybody. But Pete made sure I got to know people, including his family, his dad, cowboy. You know, Pete was a family racer. It yes. wasn't just him and the boys. It was him and his family, his wife, and they'd bring an RV down. And I got to meet everybody. And, of course, that's when I met Fast Eddie, <laughs> Brian, Brian Eliason, who you and I have in common, yes. who's just a, a really fun, exciting, crack-up character that, that – keeps the entertainment level up, up all the time. My brother from another mother. He is. He's, he's fun. And he's one of the few guys I still keep in contact with. He's gotten out of desert racing, but I still talk to him about it. And we talk about Pete and we have that in common and, and you in common. And it's, it's a, it's a bond that is strong. Yes. You know, that's one thing that off-road had done for me more than bike racing. Is, you know, I is, think, I think it's those, those long trips across yeah. 
a, you know, with three guys in a pickup truck <laughs> trying to get to the next pit stop, you know, or to go get tacos because, you know, you got a, a couple of hours to kill, you know, while pre-running or whatever. And, yep. you know, just shooting video and trying to get, you know, I, I can remember those days. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the video that you shot where we saw the donkeys and, yep. you know, right. Fast Eddie tried to go ride the donkey and, you know, he was calling, he was, he was calling the donkey Cameron. <laughs> yep. Yep. I don't know where he comes up with these ideas in his head, but man, he just, he just has this great sense of humor that just comes out and it's goofy. It but is. yeah, it, it breaks up the monotony because we're out in the middle of nowhere. I remember that exactly what happened and when that was. And yeah, we're, we're waiting to, 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 to the next point where Pete is pre-running or somebody else, somebody's in the pre-runner and we're just trying to kill time and trying to get to the next place. And, and we just kind of have to entertain ourselves and we have to depend on each other down there. We're in Mexico. Yep. Some people speak Spanish. Some don't. Some people have been there before. Some haven't. Some people are mechanically inclined. Some aren't. Some are good drivers and can drive in the night. Others are, shouldn't be driving at nighttime. They get sleepy. Um, some drink, some don't. And so there's all that whole combination gets the job done and it takes a whole bunch of people, several people that all have different skills and levels of uh, ambition and ability. And, and then you become dependent upon each other. True. We realize we're in Mexico, we're in a different country. And, and if something does go wrong, we got to help each other. And, and so there's a camaraderie that, that camaraderie that gets built up there. Yep. It's uh, it's, it's, it, it's awesome. I mean, I, I remember almost everybody that we, that were on the teams that when I joined at the thousand, cause I only ever came down for the thousand. Right. Um, I came down once or twice for the, for the two fifty for San Felipe. Yeah. And I was out at, um, out in Vegas a couple of times with them. And then of course, when the pirate team put together and then we, you know, with Schaefer as well, a couple of, yep. you know, races and, and I years remember when Schaefer. he was racing. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was, it's, I missed those, I missed those times, but I don't know if I'm, if my body, you know, it was a lot easier to do when you were younger. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, believe me. I'm I'm the same, you know, we know, we know we're the same age and I'm the same way. I have to, I have to watch myself. And that's what a lot of times I'll drive myself if it's the San Felipe. So I know I can bail out or I can go to sleep on my own schedule. I can't pull all nighters right. and I don't have, I can't hike halfway across the desert and I can't lift a hundred and 150 pound off-road trophy truck tire over my head. My shoulders are too messed up from motorcycle crashes. Yep. So, so I have to watch myself. I can't do what I did 10 years ago or 15 years ago, but back when we met, I remember, and you said Mike Schaefer was there. Also it was Dave Cole. And when I go to King of the Hammers and I see Dave Cole, he comes up and hugs me and shakes my hand and I wonder why, once I ask him, why, why are you being nice to me? How do you even know who I am really? And he goes, cause I, I don't, I'm not involved in King of the Hammers except for a guy with a camera that runs out there. He goes, you helped me get going in off-road racing with Pistol Pete. You were there and helped me out. And this was about 2005, 2006, I think 2007 when you were getting into it and, yeah. and, uh, with Pete and it's a, you know, it's a, it was a bond and a camaraderie that he appreciates to this day, 15 years later. Yeah. The first. My first trip to Baja was with BFG Pitt. Um, we, uh, myself and my son went down 
and worked one of the BFG pits. Yeah. And it was the year they shot Dust to Glory. And so that would 2003. Be, that would be 03. Yeah, 03. And then um, we didn't go down. And then the next time we went down, I went down in 2005. Yep. And that was with Pete, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Or, may, or maybe it was a combination of Pirate and Pete with Lance yep. and, and Rogie and Schaefer and all those guys with the Terminator. Yep. Yep. Yeah, some fun times. That's what's when I met you guys down there. Yep. Yeah. And I, and so getting back to Pistol Pete now, I started hanging out with him and he couldn't pay me. He he was a, you know, we always said he was a working class guy trying to trying to hang out in the expensive sport of unlimited vehicle racing, desert racing, and he couldn't pay me, but he could give me food and the camaraderie and introduce me to other guys, which he did. And then my first real paid gig besides selling DVDs came with cops racing, which was John Langley and sons, right? You know, John, people know John Langley is the producer, the creator and producer of the very first reality show on TV, which was cops, bad boys, bad boys. What you going to do? Yep. That was technically the first reality show on TV in 1988, I think started and I think it's still going on. And so they knew they wanted to do an off-road reality show called Road Warriors. Hmm. And this was about 2000, 2008, 2009. And they knew that I was Pistol Pete's video guy or hung out with him. And so they said, oh, you know Pistol. You get along with him. He'll let you hang out with him. Why don't you just run around to a camera and film him? Because they wanted Pistol Pete with his with his uh, personality, which he has a lot of. Yep. He's not afraid to speak his mind, as we all know. <laughs> he'll he'll insult anybody on a moment's notice, and 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 tell you what he thinks. If it's a piece of crap, he'll let you know. And <laughs> and uh, so cops hired me, and they paid me good wages because they were professional, you know, Hollywood film company right so i did that for a couple of years that was nice and unfortunately the road warriors tv show didn't work out for reasons i don't know it just didn't it never got off the ground i guess they were just unable to sell it to a network yeah probably there's a lot of that they had to, they had to produce some pilot shows which they did i have a, t- a tape i have a dvd of one of the pilot shows and they actually showed it around and it probably found online, but they never got it off the ground. That's too bad. They didn't have the, whatever the, 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 well, uh, you know, that you got to be able to Hollywood has this preconceived idea of what will work and what won't work. They're, they're, a, they have a form, they have formulas or they have one formula. Right. I've been told that all movies have the same formula. You know, exactly. there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a list of about a bullet list of about five things you go through, you know, of crisis and leading up to redemption at the end, you know? Right. And, 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 and that's it with every, none, no, all movies, though they don't seem the same. They are the same because they all have the same, same kind of plot line. Exactly. And, and that's what they, and that's what they want. And, and road warriors really couldn't deliver, didn't deliver that. Right. Well, and the, the thing is though, is it, if it doesn't, they, they think it needs, it needs this artificial drama, and yeah. especially for 
for any kind of, uh, you know, reality TV or, or all the reality shows have that crazy drama. You know, they're coached. Oh, they yeah. want you to fight. They want you to argue. They, they don't want to kick out the bad boys cause they, cause there's the one that created the drama. So they keep them in the show. Correct. Yeah. I, I watched, I watched the bachelor and those shows. I watched those and you can just tell what they're doing behind the scenes to make people excited about it or else it gets boring. Yeah. That's, that's why, you know, rock crawling. We, we actually had a show go all the way up to the television part of the Weinstein group. And oh, then yeah. that was when Weinstein got busted mm-hmm. in that whole Me Too thing. And uh-huh. they, they, I mean, that, that production company just went to, to shit, in a, you know, real quick. And we lost the, uh, we lost the production of that because they were like, okay, we're going to do this. I mean, we were within like a week or two of selling the the TV show and the way we had produced it, which was, you know, it was real. I mean, it was going to be following drivers, you know, doing, I mean, it was going to be like dust to glory, but with the rock crawling and it, it was really good the way the guys that had shot it um, and put it together. And I'd like to see that sometime. We lost it. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. I mean, it was, it was very sad. But it was, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. But you know, that yeah. happens, you know, the, the production companies, the ones that I've dealt with, um, typically doesn't go past the interview phase because I tell them, you know, I'm not interested in, in bullshit TV. You know, I don't want a combination of, you know, American chopper, swamp people and ice, <laughs> ice road truckers. Yeah, you know, and I had this one lady at one time go, well, you know that swamp people. That's one of my shows, and I said, then great, because you know exactly what I don't want. <laughs> and she goes, well, you know that's what you know that's what people buy, and I said, they don't. That's what you want them to buy. So yeah. you've created this whole thing that that's what that's all that's that people will watch. And I said, I don't believe that's true. And the, you want fact, them to set the bar higher. Yeah. So what I got to do at the at the what I told him is I said, well, this will be the thing. We'll do the show, but if you edit it and make any of my drivers look like idiots or myself look like idiots, I'm going to walk into your office and, you know, somebody's going to get a beat down. I'm not afraid to go to, to jail for my sport. <laughs> and she goes, you'd hit a woman? And I said, no, but I'll bet there's a man in that office. He's going to take one for the team. Yeah, <laughs> and I never got another call back. <laughs> they didn't. Li- they didn't like your attitude. No, they, they you, didn't. You you were asking for a little too much control by their measure. Yep, except for the yeah. two guys that had come over from um, Real World, and they were uh, like, they 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 saw the sport of rock crawling on some videos that were on YouTube or something, and they were like, "Wow, this is really cool. Who do we need to talk to?" And somebody gave him my number, and we uh, we actually went pretty far with it, but just couldn't make it happen, unfortunately. We we're so yeah. close. Yeah. So then, yep. so the, from Cops. That's Cops round up to about 2010 with Pistol Pete. Okay. And the TV show didn't work out. Cops was still calling me to sh- do some, shoot some video, or they'd want me to drive out to Barstow and meet them and shoot some video of them doing testing. And then I ran into a guy named Rusty Stevens, who who 
was from Amarillo, Texas, and he had Pampa, Texas, to be exact. And he had become a millionaire by doing all the landscaping and earthwork for uh, T. Boone Pickens, who has a humongous 50 or $100 million ranch up on up somewhere by the border of Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Right. And he wanted to become an off-road trophy truck racer. So instead of working his way up through different categories, which I think you should do, which coming from bicycle racing is essential by the rules. You have to start a beginner and then work to intermediate and then get into the professional level or the highest level. Right. Off-road racing, you just buy your way in. You can just buy your way in. And he, he did that. And he went and bought BJ Baldwin's old trophy truck and fixed it up and hired a team, team manager, a, a, a promotions manager, a giant shop in the uh, in the motorsports park uh, at Las Vegas. You know, a giant shop, a giant shop, which I think was ten thousand dollars a month rent. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A motorhome, a pre runner, uh, offices that have had had uh, cots in it so people could sleep in it. <laughs> it just, but he would go out and do the races, and he just. Either from the performance of the truck, it wasn't a great truck, or BJ wouldn't have sold it. Right. You know, you got to you got to wonder about people selling their old equipment because it's it's probably because it's not working for them. And it wasn't. It was a Porter, mid mid drive, mid engine Porter, uh, V drive. I think. Yeah, since it's mid engine, it had to be have a V drive on it. And those don't hold up unless you're Robbie Gordon. Even then, he's he's had his problems. So anyhow, he could never he never finished a race. My video. I got very frustrated because my videos would never work out. I could never produce a good video for them because they could never finish a race. And I never know exactly what, what exactly happened. You know, I'd get the report afterwards or I'd go home just dejected. It's like, well, he, he didn't, he didn't finish. I didn't even get to see him out there the whole race. So I worked for him for a few years and it was fun. It was, you know, we went down and did a couple of races in Mexico, the code races, which are fun. And again, I meet more people. Right. And so, and so uh, since then there's been no need for DVD production. So I've just, I'll show up at a race or I, I mean, beforehand I make a contract with a few guys that still produce videos for teams. And all I do is go out there and give them my footage. So I have, I don't have any big responsibility of a finished product. All I have to do is shoot a bunch of content of, of our, our racers that, that are paying for foot, paying for a video. And I, dump it all in their laps when I leave and then I come home and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to edit. I don't have to gather footage. And that works well for me right now. Awesome. And, and that's what I'll be doing this weekend. I'll be working for a guy out of Phoenix. He gets me a media pass. I'll meet him at registration. I go out and shoot for two days and he tells me who to shoot, where to shoot. And I collect a little check and that's, and I get to see the, the badass off-road racing, Yep. you know, and hopefully get to, get to rub elbows with your friends. Yep. I get to see people. I have friends. I'd, I'd say that half of my Facebook friends are people uh, that I hardly know. I mean, a lot of me, I probably have 500 Mexican off-road racing fans because they know I'm a video guy and I'll put those little, show little videos on YouTube. They want to see what videos and photos I take. Right. And it's great. And, and the same thing in off-road. There are people that I know only from off-road and I don't call them. 
we don't, I don't talk on the phone. We just meet at an off-road race every month or every six months. Sometimes a whole year will pass it, but I meet them at Tech and Contingency in Ensenada, and they remember me, and I remember them, and we shake and hug and maybe go have tacos together. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. So have, with Facebook, have you been on the band from Baja Talk site that my buddy Steve Sullivan had set up? No, I haven't. Oh, you should check that one out. It's banned. Okay. It's banned from Baja Talk or something like that. And, oh, uh, okay. Steve Sullivan was a Vora racer when yeah. I owned Vora yeah. and, you know, ran around with, uh, you know, in that whole scene and everything. And he lives down in Ensenada now. Oh. He retired down there and yeah. uh, he's got a compound and, you know, is always... Always with the you know all the racers or a lot of racers go go by his place and everything so it's pretty cool so uh-huh. you should check that uh that page I out. Cert- I will I will so, yeah you being from Sacramento you're a Vora guy I'll tell you I've only shot one Vora race because it's kind of out of the way right and they were they're generally smaller races Prairie City but there was one Vora race I went to and it was unique and that it was a combination Vora slash hdr race hdra race oh and yeah this the, is when the 500 this is when roger norman owned hdra yep i think he was in the process of trying to buy score and trying to make it happen and it, and it wasn't happening and he bought he created re- resurrected hdra and he and wes harbor, wes harbor got together with the owner of the brothel outside of at the Mustang Ranch. Yep. And because his son, the Gillum, owner of the brothel, Gilliam, Gillum or Gillum, the last name. I forget. Anyway, yeah, I'm, go ahead. I'm trying to think. Well, he is his son has an off road shop in Reno. Yes. And so there's all these connections. And we had the race there, which was on Roger Norman's property, which is now would go right through the front door of the Tesla Gigafactory. <laughs> Correct. You know, it started at it started the the start line was at the brothel, the 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 new the, the new and improved Mustang uh, Ranch, Mustang Ranch, and would go right up the canyon there where that uh, Western America uh, industrial park is that Roger Norman is a partner in or owns it all, and now it's filled with giant warehouses and rail lines, railheads, and uh, but that race was there and it was a combination Vora. It was called the Extreme, Extreme Five Hundred or the Extreme Two Hundred and Fifty or something. It was it was an eight. It was a great race. Yeah, I think they did like property. the. I think they they combined on the Independent. I want to say the Independence Day or Independent Five Hundred or something. They called it. I may be yeah. wrong with that, but that's that's what I kind of remember. Yep, yep, and it was out of uh, one of the hotels there in in Sparks and. It had a big to-do. It was a lot of action, a lot of excitement, and it was all private land, so I could ride my motorcycle all over the damn course and shoot video wherever I wanted. That's there awesome. was no, there was no lawn for, there was no land managers around. Yeah, <laughs> good old so, uh, Bureau of Land Management. Holy smokes! I've had my run-ins with them. I still hear about them. I'm, I'm, yeah, I. <laughs> I try to get around, and sometimes I take my motorcycle, and I'm taking my electric bike bicycle to try to get to this place called. Um, beer bottle pass. Okay, there down by Gene and Prim, and it's it's kind of a far away place, and I know I can't drive there, but I think I can ride my e bike there and shoot video there and get something unique. And that's my plan. If I if the law 
the the land managers don't come after me and tell me otherwise. Right. <laughs> you know. So. Well, this will release after that. So. <laughs> I don't think I have a lot of Bureau of Land Management people on it on listening be, to this. They won't anyway. be waiting for me. Yeah, yeah, they're not any of my uh, of my normal listeners. I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've met some good ones. I've met some individually good ones, and you know, some of them are off road fans, but you know, some of them aren't. And yeah. Anyhow, that's I think that's about my whole story. It kind of brings me up to where I am now. You know, just kind of doing contract video work, and I still, I I I, I got hooked up with a my found out my college, my Colorado School of Mines, that the mechanical engineering seniors have a senior project, and they're building a truck. Hopefully, it's done now. And they're racing the San Felipe 250 in three weeks. Really? And I've been their consultant. They found out how much I knew about off-road racing in San Felipe and hotels and restaurants and the course. And and I've been mostly coaching them on trying to get that damn thing out here to Grand Junction so they can test it and get find out, work out the bugs before they go race it in the San Felipe race and waste their money. Are you going to go down to San Felipe with them? So I am. I'm going to go down there and kind of, you know, show them the restaurants, show them the nightclubs, show them the, okay. tell them stories. About... Make sure they're <laughs> old enough. <laughs> <laughs> and they, yeah, they look like they're young kids now. They're probably 20, 21, 22 years old, oh, but they look like good. little tiny kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, I'm going to do that, but I'm really winding down now and it's been very, you know, for by and large, real satisfying, a really interesting experience getting in the off-road racing world, rock crawling, desert racing, motorcycle racing. I feel very privileged to have the position and the, the wherewithal to make it happen and get involved. And the people I've met, you know, like fast Eddie, you know, I could call him right now and ask him to borrow money or to sleep in his house tomorrow night and and i would get you know results it's we're, right. we i've made some close friends and and with you as well i, I always see you like once or twice a year but yep. you know there's a there's a respect and a camaraderie that is is really pretty cool that comes about from the off-road world absolutely absolutely you must you must have it all over the place you know, you know what we have you know we have a great community yeah. you know and that's that's uh that's real important um, more important to me now than when I got started in this. I didn't realize what we were building, but yeah. it's, uh, you know, after 21, 22 years of doing this now, it's, it's been really, it's been really satisfying, satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, friends that you have and people that will shake your hand and do something for you or, you know, if you got any problems or you get a flat tire on a Sunday <laughs> or a transmission problem on a Sunday and you're in Moab you, you, there's somebody that will get you on your way and get you going home or feed you and give you a place to stay. Or sometimes just somebody to just sit and talk to for a little bit and reminisce True. about old days. So it's yes. worth a lot. It is. I, appre it really I appreciate is. what, what level I have. So. Excellent. Well, Doug, I want to say thank you for, for spending the time and, uh, and having this conversation and talking about the history. I mean, it, I learned a lot about you. I knew that you'd, you know, the bike racing and the off-road and the rock crawling, but some of the other, I mean, the, the amount the engineering of engineering inventions done, and things. Yeah. I didn't know about those. Yeah. Well, so I, you know, cool. when you're, when you're an off-road, you're, you're focused on what's in your immediate environment. You know, a lot of people, Pistol Pete couldn't believe that I had 
a master's degree in engineering. <laughs> I didn't want to flaunt it, and I didn't want to try to act like a, a boss because I wasn't. I, you know, Pete was the boss, and he also had an incredible knowledge of building off-road vehicles that went way beyond engineering, right. to leave, you know, book learning, learning engineering. I mean, he had the practical skills of getting a, a vehicle to the finish line, which is damned impressive. Yes. And, uh, yeah, there's, I, there's, I, a, there, I always thought that he, I still think he was probably one of the greatest drivers and was playing in the, in the arena with the guys that had all the money. And if he yeah. would have had, if he would have had the backing of, you know, what Menzies or Baldwin oh. or any of those guys oh. got. Oh yeah. He would have been a consistent winner. Oh yeah. Cause Def- he could, definitely. I still think he could outdrive all those guys. He knew, he knew that he, he would say that. And, uh, it, I knew it frustrated him. And he would break down and he was, yeah, he was a great driver. I, I got the opportunity to be in his pre-runner at, at scary speeds with him sometimes. And he was, he, he never screwed up. He was really, really good. Yeah. Um, you know, he never screwed up when I was in the car with him and it was very impressive. And he was, he had a problem with one of his eyes. He would have even been better. Yes. If, if he had perfect functioning eyes he had an eye that had uh, uh problems with uh, what do you call it the cornea the retina the yep. you know the exposure of, of the eye i think he from, got hit with a golf club he did he out got golfing. Hit, ac- yep. accidentally he got yep. hit with a golf club out on a golf course yep you know, people it was not intentional <laughs> no, no. You might think it was, and you might think it, you'd believe it if I told you it was Robbie Gordon. <laughs> We're not going to throw make, Robbie under the bus that time. That would make more sense. <laughs> All right. But, yeah. Well, I appreciate talking with you, and I hope that uh, uh, that that will do it. And um, yeah, and I hope to look, see you. I'll be I'll be around Easter. I'll be back in Moab. So. Um, I'd like to run around Easter Jeep Safari and look at all the the high the the high tech toys and uh, you know it's fun to see that going on that week. So I'll I'll see you there and yeah. run into you and we'll have to get together for a coffee or a meal or something like that. Absolutely. Let me know when Good. you come into Moab during that uh, week before and uh, I'll be around and we'll we'll hook up. Sounds, Sounds good, good, Rich. All right. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Is that it? Yep. That's it. Good night. Good night. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.